probably most of us are aware where this comes in, in the flow of history. This is Deuteronomy is at the end of Moses' life and he's recounting those events of God's absolute power and the way that he has delivered them from, remember, not just slavery, but they were under slavery and oppression to the degree that they were crying out to God for help. And God had delivered them and brought them through and provided the food and all of these things. And in the midst of all this, remember, he gave them his law. His law was so remarkably clear. That's one of the things whenever I look back and, and, and read through the Old Testament and you see the Ten Commandments and then you continue on through the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and you, you see the laws that God is putting on his people. Some people scratch their heads and say there's so much detail, there's so much precision. What's with all of that? It, it, rather than saying how glorious God is telling them precisely and exactly what it is they ought to do in this circumstance. And in this circumstance, if someone has this skin affliction like this, if someone, if this happens, then go through this. It's, as you read through it, let it not be something that sometimes get, gives you this sense of bogged down. Oh no, how, look at this, how could they live like this? My heart wells up and says, wonderful. Instead of sometimes, and we face these questions in our own lives sometimes, what ought I do in this circumstance, in this circumstance, and what would be most pleasing to the Lord? God, by giving them such exacting laws, set them up wonderfully. And in the context of that old covenant, those exact or the terms of the old covenant came with attendant blessings for faithfulness and obedience, as well as curses for disobedience. And Deuteronomy chapter 28 is really recounting those events. If you look at the very beginning of the chapter, it says with these beautiful words, uh, beautiful in one sense, but frightening in another, because there is the, the second word in the English Standard Version is that conditional if. And we know that for the history of the children of Israel, left to their own hearts, could they fulfill the, the requirements of the law? No. Indeed, by the, by the requirements of the law, no one would be righteous in the sight of God. But Christ, born of a woman, born under the law, would come and fulfill what we could not. Delighting in the law of the Lord and bringing delight to his Father. But it says, and if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments. Remember that we, when we go back over and we think in our New Testament to James, those of us doing the McShane reading have just gone through James recently. He who keeps the whole law yet offends in one point, what does it say? He is guilty of all. So it's not a little here and a little there. He's really calling themselves to whole, sell, committed obedience. If you obey all the commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. The, the phrasing for both the blessings as well as Curses in Deuteronomy 28 has that idea similar to what we see in maybe Psalm 23. Uh, uh, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow you all the days of your life. So pursue you. It's coming to get me. If you are obedient and faithful to the commands of God. This it's going to it's going to chase the blessings are going to chase you down and overtake you. Which sounds OK if it's blessings. But the same thing is the case with regard to the cursings. If you disobey and do not do, then these curses, these punishments will chase you down and overtake you. And remember, it was in the same Old Testament context that uh, God had reminded these children, uh, the children of Israel, that when you, if you do these things, you shall be to me a treasured people. 
a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. If you do these things. But for those of us who are in Christ, the declaration in Peter was not if you do these things. It is by grace through faith in Christ alone. It says you are. As Christ is that beautiful and glorious fulfillment. His, the covenant that he works in us by grace. It, it's not a covenant that makes us a lawless people by any means. It's a covenant that makes us a people who are obedient from the heart. And it, it, it is so glorious. And I want us to see this. So uh, in verse 28, we see that he begins with those blessings and, and mentions the blessings that will overtake them. But then he lists for most of the rest of chapter 28, curses and troubles and problems. And that's why it begins this way in verse 45. All these curses shall come upon you, pursue you, and overtake you till you are destroyed. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord. We're, our, our main focus today is going to be on verse 47. And it speaks of the curses will come upon them because they did not serve the Lord their God. With joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. First thing I want us to consider in this is our service to the Savior. We are all called to serve. We, this is one of the things we oft have to get reorganized. Not so much here, but as we communicate with our brothers and sisters in different places. The tendency is to think that there are certain people who are called to serve the Lord and others who are not, who are just, just believers, just Christians. And how dare we use the word just in front of those wonderful evidences of God's grace to have faith implanted in our hearts by his word, to be those who know him. And love him is to be those who serve him. And I want us to begin to think of that. We see that we render a service to him. But what we're going to also see in this passage. It's not just a service. It is a service of delight from the heart. Now the scripture reminds us very similar to what we look at in the Old Testament. It's not just uh, he says it do it. He says it do it. That is there, and, and that obligation surely falls upon all. But because it is he who says it, we ought to delight to do it. Because in doing it, we are doing the very thing that he who is sovereign, he who is Lord of lords and King of kings, he who is maker of all things, has told us, are the things that delight him. The things that are pleasing in his eyes. It, when Jesus was being asked regarding uh, what is the greatest commandment or what are the greatest commandments, we remember his response in Mark chapter 12 verse 30. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. What's left? That's with all that you are. And we've considered this so many times before. There are those who would tragically somehow turn love into a category of mere emotion. Instead of genuine action. Well, 1 John chapter 5 reminds us in those opening verses what? For this is the love of God. That we Obey his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Why are they not a burden? Because I know this is what pleases my God. He's, he's not hidden the things that are delightful in his eyes. He set them out there before us that we may know him. The, the greatest commandment is to love him. And there are those who think that they can carry on in willful, flagrant sin and rebellion because of the merciful patience of God. And they're fine as long as they love him. But what does it mean that you love him if you don't obey him? 
if you don't follow him, if you don't serve is that love uh, we, we've seen the beginning of this chapter in Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 12 it says this and now Israel what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God to walk in all his ways to love him to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul so uh, you know when people try to divide what God has brought together, it is not good. We often hear this at times that there are, when there are weddings, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder, or what God has, let no man divide, depending on which translation you're using, what God has brought together. God has brought together the concepts of loving Him, serving Him, fearing him in the old testament context that's uh, walking in his ways that is that is reverence worship obedience love service it, it, it is all tangled together and that we would live in an age where people would try to pull a piece of that out love you got this little feeling thing you're good let's keep going first thessalonians i love the way paul commends the church there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, the things that are heard concerning that church, it says, For they report, they themselves report concerning us what kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. True turning to God will indeed inevitably involve what as well? Serving. Those who turn saying we're saved by works, by no means are we saved by works. But John James also says in chapter 2, 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Because remember, we also remember this, the saving faith that is ours is a gift of God, not our own works. And the saving faith, the gift that God gives is an active faith, is a living faith, is a serving faith, is a working faith. And that's why he goes on in James uh, 2.18, someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Why are they dividing these, those two things? Now, can someone do works without faith? Yes. And if they're tr trusting in their works for acceptance with God, that is, a, that is a foolish hope. Their works, their deeds will not achieve them righteousness of any kind. But those who think that simply by expressing verbally, a commitment and having internally some stirring sensation. That's something you show. He says, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Works service is the manifestation, the byproduct, the fruit of genuine faith so it's it's not for those who are of faith we don't have to to work ourselves up works because because we believe we will serve how you turned from these false gods to serve the true and living god um romans 12 1 says this i appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of the living god to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, calling upon us to present ourselves, to give, much like Romans 6, to present your members as instruments of righteousness. We, we actively give ourselves to God as a living sacrifice, which is going to last a little longer than a sacrifice that is put upon the altar. Is that one's done and burned up 
quickly. A living sacrifice means this is, this is an ongoing pattern. Holy and acceptable to God. And then we get that last phrase that confuses all commentators and translators. Which is your, our reasonable worship. Which is a reasonable act of service. What is it? If everyone else is confused, I'm not going to give you the definitive. And I think it's partly because we're trying to divide things. Service, worship, love, life, all these things flow together. And it is a, it is a very rare word in the New Testament. This is what we ought to do. This is how we live. And all of life is worship. That's why, backing it out, and, and we work on this. How many times have you possibly gone to a church... And this time right here is considered the sermon time. That time that we did moments ago was considered the worship time. You ever heard those things? But what do we think about that? That's not there. And so the tendency, we say, no, we understand it's more than that. That is worship. This is worship. We pray it's worship. But brothers and sisters, we're not. When we go out from here, that's worship. When we're, when we're at home with our families, when we're at work, every aspect of our lives is in service, worship, awareness to God. Now, there, are, there is corporate worship, but everything directed and designed towards God. Goes on in Romans 12, 11 to say, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Do it, you know, and, I, and I, I do know some dear brothers and sisters in Christ, and I want us to, to get this firmly from the scriptures. There's, there can be a tendency because of grace, and we always want to glory in the grace of God. But there can be a tendency in grace to people say, look, we live by grace. As people who live by grace, we don't want our faith, our religion, our belief. We don't want a bunch of do's and don'ts. Just let us walk by grace. Just yeah, By grace, we are enabled to live out the do's and don'ts that we did not have the capacity before. If you say, uh, since we are under grace and not under the law, don't tell me do's and don'ts. You got to cl close your eyes during many verses in the Bible. We don't, the, the scriptures are full of a lot of blessed commands, blessed imperatives. It's almost as if people living under grace have an aversion to the notion of commands. Commands for the children of God are a delight. We love them. Do not be saw, don't do this, don't do this, do this, put away this. Put on this. And we all say. Tell me more Lord. Show me. Whatever you would have of me Lord. What it, it confuses me. How now. I will never denigrate grace. Grace is where we stand. Grace is the grounds for our acceptance. Because it is all the work of God. It is because of grace that I am being sanctified. It is the grace of God that is at work within me that enables me to work. Paul says, I worked harder than all the rest. What is he saying? He worked harder. Then he goes on to say what? Nevertheless, not I, but the grace of God in me. So, so we don't have to play this game that, that, that grace and works also belong apart. Grace of God so powerfully working produces in us faith, produces in us works, produces in us love, fills us with all these wonderful things. Remember Titus 2, 13 and 14 says these words concerning us as we are those who are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our, the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, it describes what Jesus did, who gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, which we love that, right? To make us people for his own possessions. We are his and he is ours. 
who are zealous for good works. This, this sounds like the saving grace and work of God that is brought upon us by our Savior does not allow <laughs> the notion that men teach today uh, of Christians, which is wholly unsound, but this doesn't even allow for the concept of complacent, complacent Christians or casual Christians. People who the grace of God is at work in. It is a mighty work. A transforming work. An invigorating work. An enabling work. An inspiring work. Changes us. Changes our hearts. Changes our desires. At every single part of us. That's why it says in Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus Unto good works that he prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Yeah, we don't trust in works. We trust in Christ. We thank God for his grace. But his grace doesn't simply give us a ticket to heaven. It transforms us at the very root of our desires and delights. Okay. Remember also um, in Hebrews it says this, Hebrews 9, 14. And I'm sharing a bunch of verses because I think, I believe and I hope you do that the word of God has the power to renew our minds and hearts. I have confidence that God's word can help us lay hold of truth better than my words. Hebrews 9, 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works, right? So our conf confidence isn't just in works, just in activity and obedience. Purify our consciences from dead works. Serve the living God. Wait, I thought we just got rid of works. For one moment, it looked like we got rid of works, and then it says to serve. What happened? No, we got rid of dead works. We got rid of works for works' sake. And now it's works because of gratitude, thankfulness, humble appreciation, awe. We, we strive to be those who live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Because the grace that is ours... I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings here. But the grace that is ours, we will never be worthy of it in this life. No one can say, I deserved salvation. I deserved forgiveness. One of the beautiful things that the grace of God does when it comes to us, it reveals to us His glory and righteousness and our sinfulness through the hearing of the gospel, where we declare God is right and righteous and just to condemn me. I deserve his judgment. But that he would have mercy on me in Christ. Oh. But I fear that when the truth of sin and man's unworthiness is not proclaimed, the sense of humility and gratitude and commitment and devotion and service becomes absent. Because people think, of course God saved me. He's trying to save everybody and I let him save me. What? You've missed it. He could have. And, and we might say would have, would have been right us in our sin. In mercy, he sent his son to seek and save the lost. One last verse before we move on to the second point. It says this in 1 Peter 1 verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Speaking of the, the salvation that is ours, that is given to the elect. We are saved according to the foreknowledge of God and the Father. In the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Christ. It's part of it. 
It's not, you know, it seems that some would think that that passage is going to say for companionship so God doesn't get lonely for eternity. You've heard those kind of sayings and those poems that are written that somehow, you know, you know why God saved. Because otherwise, for all eternity, it would be just him. He'd be so bored and so lonely and he needed someone to, to, to love and to enjoy and to, you know, poor lonely God. What? I, I mean, realistically, we need to be less full of ourselves. Are we that great of companions? Are we that good of conversationalists? You know, probably in this last uh, week with family gatherings and such, we've kind of found ourselves come to the end of those things at times. It's like, oh boy, I, I, I hear myself repeating the same story for the third time and it's not getting more interesting. You know, We are those who serve the Lord. They did not serve the Lord their God. But not only did they, were they going to not serve the Lord their God, but more than that, they did not serve the Lord their God with joyfulness and gladness of heart. I always found that interesting when I read through that passage. It was not going to be enough to just go through the motions. It wasn't just enough to make the checklist and carry it out. Enough just for self-serving motives of gain to do it. There, there were to be attendant to this a right understanding of who God is. And they should understand even in their obedience to the old covenant law, they would have still not deserved the scope of promises that were going to be heaped upon them. But listen, it says this, you did not serve the Lord with joyfulness and gladness of heart. That was the threat to them. But the, the glory of it as we come forward, for those of us who are in Christ today, we remember when you're looking at that challenging, that beautiful section of Romans chapter 6 through 8, what was our condition? We were slaves of sin. And then what did God do? He set us free from sin to become slaves of God, slaves of righteousness. But wedged in there and too, too oft overlooked is this clear verse in Romans 6, 17. And I always love the way that God is pleased to phrase it if we just listen to what it says for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because you were dead in your sin. You were continuing to live according to your sinful desires. That's who you were. You were bound and it was inescapable. But now you have been set free. Now you have been unbound from that master and bound to another master. And you know who's getting the praise and thanks in all of this? It's not. But thank you for turning. Thank you for believing. Thank you for changing. You were bound. Escape. You know, you didn't slowly saw off the bonds. You didn't spoon your way through a wall. You, di you did not get out somehow. What does it say in Romans 6, 17? But thanks be to God. That should that that phrase, I, I, I get maybe it be it has become just like the modern phrasing. People will often is become part of our colloquial language. Simply say thank God, and it's, they're just saying it. There's no thought of God necessarily. Well, thank God that worked out, which means simply means I'm glad that worked out. Well, no, really, thanks be to God that what. You who were once slaves of sin decided to stop serving it. No, thanks be to God. You were once have become. I love that phrasing have become is, is so important because it's a change that's come upon you, not a change that you have made. <laughs> you who were once a slave to sin have become obedient, but not just obedient, obedient from the heart. That's the difference. 
I mean, those of us who are parents and those of us, I mean, even if you're not a parent, you can probably still visualize this. When a parent would ask their child to go and clean your room. And if the child goes in there and they, the, their initial way of cleaning is they're kicking things into the closet while grumbling and kicking things under the bed and the parent passes by the room and hears the mumbling and muttering. Does it just warm our hearts? Aww. Or, do we, or does it like, it doesn't matter. Even though they're doing what I asked, I'm not delighted, not pleased, to, to, but to hear them in there going about it, joyfully whistling or singing, is, then all of a sudden it's, oh, that's wonderful. It, it conveys a different thing. The, the grace of God and the transforming work make us a people who are obedient from the heart. And, and what's happened is if, if we are obeying, and even if we're living in a sense where, where thankfulness and gratitude have somehow escaped us, it's because we're just not looking rightly. You know, the kid who, whose room is a mess because the, there's toys all over the place. You know what's, what's mixed into the, to the mess there? How blessed he is to have toys all over the place. There are many who don't have those things in such quantities. Even I would go on and say, uh, you've become obedient to the heart, to the teach, standard of teaching to which you have been committed, having been set free from sin and been slaves of righteousness. We serve from the Spirit. Now, I want to just draw your attention to something because this can get lost and this should not get lost. So we're to serve the Lord with gladness, joyfulness of heart, rejoicing. But I want us to, to, to see this very clearly. The joyfulness of heart, the gladness and rejoicing that we serve with. The serving is still according to the commands and will of God. In other words, somebody who wants to ignore the standard of teaching that's been committed to them. But then just serve with joyfulness of heart. They want to put aside truth, put aside doctrine. Put aside all of the, the things that we to believe that we are to grow in grace and knowledge. They want to put aside all knowledge and yet somehow lay hold of much grace. That, that just want to be um, joyful and celebrate and energetic and enthusiastic. But think that somehow greater enthusiasm will attend to less and less instruction and commands. There's a mistake. And again, those who have been doing the McShane reading have recently read through the first part of First Chronicles. And I want to draw your attention to that. In chapter four, uh, uh, 13. And then 15. In chapter 13, David decided, hey, I want to bring the Ark of the Covenant here to Jerusalem. That it should no longer be there. He asks all the people, what do you think? They all say, sounds good to us. And so they prepare to do it, and it tells you as it says as you read through there. So they take the Ark of the Covenant, they put it on new cart, and they begin to transport it. And it tells us uh, in verse 8, it says this, of 1 Chronicles 13. David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might. I'm not going to demonstrate that for you. You can visualize it. It would have been exuberant. They were celebrating with all their might. But while they were doing that, was God pleased with them? He was not. Because how is the ark to be transported? Do you remember? It is to be carried by the Levites. By the Poles. Who, is the, who first put... The ark on the new cart. That was the sending back. Their practice was to put it on a new cart. Here, without ask, without considering, how would God have us do this? They did it their way. What do we think we should do? What do we think is best 
expedient, easiest, more enjoyable. What do we think? They did it their way. And in doing it their way, they engaged in maximum enjoyment and celebration. And God looks upon it not with delight. He looks upon it with disdain. And that cart's going to rumble and tumble as it passes. And one of those men is going to reach out and touch the Ark of the Covenant, Uzzah. And what's going to happen when he touches it? The anger of the Lord is kindled against him and he falls down dead. And David himself there, it says in verse 11, David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. Can you believe that? David was angry. <laughs> the Lord had judged this man because he had touched, though he was not supposed to touch. And so, uh, and then it goes on to say this in verse 12, and David was afraid of God that day. Now, go over with me, if you would, to 1 Chronicles 15. And as you come to verse 2, David's decided again we're going to bring the ark. But look what he says now, finally. Then David said that no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God. For the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister to him forever. So now, what's happening? David has got it, and he's now going to do it initially. See, what's frustrating, when I, when I look at a lot like us, his initial response is he was upset. We were trying to do this, to bring the ark there for God, and then God is going to be upset, and God is going to kill this man. Here, ignoring what God has said. God doesn't say, just serve me. He says, serve me how I say serve me. Do what I tell you to do, what I delight in. Well, why? It's a long ways for these Levites to have to carry it. it it's impractical. It's difficult. You know, people won't enjoy it as much. Whatever. Men will even today have those same multitude of excuses for the kind of interesting things that they might incorporate into their gathered corporate services. People enjoy this. It's expedient. It's efficient. They don't ask themselves, does this please God? Are these the kind of things that the scripture lay out as how we approach him in worship? We don't just, it's not enough to just do it from the heart. Their heart was all in. They were full of joy and rejoicing, but there was not a moment that God was pleased with it. Now here once again, well... So if, if obedience and, and carefulness and trying to do what God has instructed is there, it will steal all the joy, men like to say. But will it? I'm going to say no, because as they, uh, verse 13, he had said, he had told them to consecrate themselves because, verse 13, you did not carry it the first time the Lord broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. So one of the reasons I'm mentioning this right now is because I'm urging us to serve God with a, a heart of gladness and gratitude. But what I'm saying is a heart of <laughs> is not enough. You know, it, it's, it seems right in my eyes to do this. How many times as you're reading through the the scriptures, do you, do you see that it seemed right in their eyes? It seemed right in their eyes. No, the question is this. Is it right in the eyes of the Lord? And as you go ahead and if you were to continue through chapter 15, you would see that they are appointed. There is music on this day. There are sounds of joy on this day. There is great... Uh, Shouting, so, verse 28, all Israel brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with shouting, the sound of the horn and the trumpet and cymbals and loud music. So there was just as much exuberance and joy. So to the onlooker from outside, they might not have known the difference. But God knows the difference. God looks upon the heart. And the heart can't be just joy for joy's sake, exuberance for exuberance sake, rejoicing for rejoicing sake, experience for experience sake. It all has to be done, ought be done, according to the rule. 
Let me just share a few things with you on this point even. Uh, really, Paul says as a warning of, of his brothers and sisters in, in, uh, from Israel. In Romans 10, 2 and 3, it says, I bear witness for them that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So no matter how much zeal they have, it's not according to knowledge. And so what is the case for them? They try to make a righteousness of their own. And by trying to achieve a righteousness of their own according to the law, they fail to obtain the righteousness that God gives by faith. Listen to what it says as we, we unpack a few of these. And then in Philippians and then in Psalms. Just listen to see uh, how important thankfulness and rejoicing needs to get into what we think and what we do. Uh, Colossians, first of all, Colossians 4.2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. That's a very important instruction. One that I think we too often leave off. No, we, we rarely have to be reminded to make petitions a part of our prayer. <laughs> To make requests a part of our prayer. We, we rarely need that reminder, do we? But in, in the midst of recognizing our struggles, our challenges, crying out to God for deliverance, assistance, help, need, fixing. The scriptures are reminding us here, all prayer is also to have woven within it watchfulness. Be watchful in it with thanksgiving. You cannot let, you, because it's possible, you might not like to hear this, it's possible for our prayers to become grumbling sessions under the guise of prayer. Or we're just letting know, God know how, how what he's doing isn't right, or what others are doing isn't right, and we're, be watchful in it with thanksgiving. That's a, 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 such a lesson to me. Colossians 2, 7. Rooted and built up in him. Established in the faith. Just as you were taught. Abounding in thanksgiving. So abounding in the faith. As you were taught. So learning and thanksgiving. Praying and thanksgiving. Colossians 3, 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. To, in which, to which indeed you were called in one body. And Colossians 3, 7. Whatever you do, this is going to get very broad in scope here. Whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So everything is an act of worship. Everything to rightly represent him. But what it, we, too frequently that's where the phrase ends because it doesn't fit on placards anymore. What's the next word there? Everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God through the Father. We're to be a people of constant thanksgiving. Philippians says this. Finding my brothers, chapter 3, verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. As he's preparing a summary, and it, it's, this is not unique to him because in chapter 4, verse 4, what's he going to say? Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. And if you've ever heard that sung in a round, there's a lot of rejoicing going on. Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. So, yeah, you can pray. Do make your request known, but by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known. Boy, these are the little things that, that I know that I tend, as time goes by, to start to miss. Don't forget the petitions, but that the petitions should be attended with thanksgiving. That every word and deed and everything that's going on should be attended with thanksgiving. It's too easy. And depending on dispositions, it's even easier to see glasses as half full. You know, oh, look at the full moon today. You know, the, the more clearly you can see the dark spots on it. <laughs> and, and sometimes 
we can have that disposition and tendency. And sometimes, the, remember, the, the cares that would strive to grow up and choke us out. Yeah. God has, has granted us a glorious way to, to fight against that choking out and, that, and that, that crushing spirit that often would seem to come upon David. Attend to it with thanksgiving. All right. And if you were to read through the, uh, the Psalms, you would see also how often he calls to praise the Lord with a whole heart. I do so with my whole heart. I thank God with my whole heart. He says this over and over again. About, I've got about eight or ten verses in the Psalms listed here. With all that I am. The thirdly. I want us to think of this. In this passage, remember, he says this. You did not serve with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance. Now, our translations add of all things, which is fine. The abundance of all things. Now, I want us to, to be aware of this. The abundance of all things that they had was all transitory. It was all short-lived. It was all passing away, you know. Generally speaking, and this happens. If at some point you, you finally purchase that, uh, that pair of shoes that you've always wanted, if you wear them, what happens? They begin to wear out. They begin to fade. Uh, almost everything. You, you, you purchase that new car. With the new car smell and, and everything perfectly fine and handling. None of the lights on the dash that are not supposed to be on. But then as time goes by, what happens to the new car? It also begins. And that, but listen, we, they should have praised God for the abundance of all things. God has granted us in Christ an abundance that abides. Not an abundance that passes away, but one that abides. Because remember, the scriptures uh, speak about something greater. What? Uh, 2 Corinthians speaks of this. In a church that did not have the abundance of things. It says in 2 Corinthians 8, 2 and following. Uh, speaking of the church in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction. Their abundance of joy. And their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Those are, those are a combination of phrases that just mess with your mind, don't they? Wait a second. Abundance of joy and extreme poverty going together? How does that happen? And how does extreme poverty also go with generosity? I don't understand. What it is is this. They did not value the things of this world anything compared to the things of Christ. Much like it says of Moses in, in Hebrews there. He considered the afflictions and the persecutions for the sake of Christ. A greater wealth than the wealth of Egypt. Here I look at this for example. In Hebrews 10. I remember how many times this also didn't baffle me as to what it meant, but eluded me as to would I experience the same thing? It's hard to put myself in their shoes and feel that. Hebrews 10, 34 and following. You had compassion on those in prison. And joyfully accepted the plundering of your possessions. <laughs> joyfully accepted. I mean, I, 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 when I put myself in their shoes, I, I tend to think... Okay, I, I, you know, I would coach myself through it. These are just things. They don't matter. Not a big deal. I can live without them. Or maybe they can be replaced in time. It, it's fine. I've got something better. You know, I'm working my way through it. So that I'm at peace to some degree. They're not talking about peace to some degree. They joyfully Accept it. Now, I, I probably shouldn't go so far as to visualize their home and they come through to maraud it. And they're like, wait, 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 you missed something. Look what I have over here. Did you want this too? I don't think that's necessarily what's happening. But as these things are being taken, first, God by his spirit is somehow reminding them what they have is better 
is far more. The, the thing you treasure most that you hold most precious and dear, they can't touch it. They can't take it. They don't even understand it. They don't even know it's there. They joyfully, because they joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, knowing that you yourselves had a better possession, an abiding one. Right? Well, how is that? Well, because that under the old covenant, they had promises and curses attendant. And the, those promises, when God fulfilled those promises, they were to respond with service out of gladness of heart and thanksgiving. Correct? We have a better covenant with a better mediator, with better promises. Isn't it right? And so if we've got a better covenant, a better mediator, with better promises, then how can we not even much more than them be a people of thanksgiving? I, I, the only way is if we have stopped focusing on the promises of God in Christ that are sure. In Him there are all yes and amen. They're sure in Christ. His word will never fail. It's if we've taken our eyes off of his promises and we fix them over the passing pleasures and properties of this world. That's how we miss it. Where your treasure is, Christ says, there your heart will be also. So we have those powerful and rich warnings. And I want to read one more section and then close it out. Really coming from uh, well, two. James 2 says, listen, verse 5, my brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Amen. But he says this also in 2 Peter 1, 3 and following. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We have an abundance all that is necessary for the life that God has called us to do. For the purposes for which he has made us. All that is necessary is provided to us. And all that pertains to life and godliness has been given to us. So add to your faith virtue and virtue knowledge and knowledge self-control. Because God has provided all things to us richly in abundance. And if that's the case... How can we not serve him with gladness? By way of simple reminder, three things we looked at today from this passage. The service to our Savior. All the saints are called to serve. Serve is just a, is an outworking of the faith and grace that he's given us. It is an expression of the love and reverence and gratitude that we have for him. We are a blessed people to be serving our Savior. Secondly, we've seen that the spirit of service is, is a service of a gladness and a joyfulness of heart. That woven into every aspect of our life, everything that we do, every word, every deed, every prayer, every activity, thankfulness should attend to it. You know, I... I, I it's a hard thing to acknowledge, but whenever I look at these things again and refresh my mind in these, they, they come as, as a rebuke of sorts to me because I don't do these with sufficient consistency. The spirit in serving is one of thankfulness and gratitude. And then also thirdly, that we want to remember that God has granted us an even better abundance, an abundance that abides. Let's pray.